Hello and thank you for joining for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. Give our Facebook page a like and or follow the Twitter account at Turkey Book Talk. Check out show notes and links at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com and please do rate or review the podcast wherever you listen to it which helps more people find it. Remember if you haven't already do consider signing up to become a Turkey Book Talk member for exclusive extras and help us keep going. Joining our growing list of signed up members gets you transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which so far amounts to over 90 conversations and which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is part of Bloomsbury, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Last but not least, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering various categories including Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and was previously available online but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. New episodes go out every two weeks, so the monthly membership price is no more than $6. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge that $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on with this latest episode in which we speak to Selim Deringil. He's a professor of history at the Lebanese American University and the author of The Ottoman Twilight in the Arab Lands, Turkish Memoirs and Testimonies of the Great War, published by Academic Studies Press. The volume includes his translations and annotations of memoirs by five Ottomans stationed in Syria and the Arab Peninsula during the First World War. Fali Rifka Atay, Hussein Kazim Kadri, Ali Fuad Erdan, Munever Ayashla and Najik Kijiman. These figures were not at the top echelons of power, but they are certainly all interesting characters who had a front row seat as history unfolded. Some of them interacted with or worked for senior Ottoman war leaders like Jemel Pasha, commander of the 4th Army and governor of Greater Syria, or Enver Pasha, the Ottoman minister of war. I started by asking Selim Deringil about what prompted him to embark on the project of bringing together these five memoirs in a single volume. It's the centenary of various events of the Great War, and I was already doing this project. I was already translating these memoirs, so I thought, why not do a, a sort of commemorative volume? Because a lot has been written from the Western point of view. The Great War has always been considered to be a European and Western war. It was The idea was that the Western Front was the most important, and the Eastern Front, or the Middle East, or Palestine, or whatever, got pretty short shift, actually because it was considered to be a sideline. And that has now changed in the general literature dealing with the war. It has become more mainstream to uh, include the Eastern theatre as, as, as important a theatre of war as the Western one. 
Yeah, that's definitely a theme that I've picked up looking at various volumes that have been published over the last four or five years on the centenary of uh, the First World War. It's been this sort of refocus, I think, in a lot of people who have sought to emphasise the fact that the First World War led to absolutely massive shifts across the Middle East and in, in Anatolia. And the, the whole order collapsed, really, in a lot of places and uh, was refashioned. And it went through and it didn't just end in the First World War, of course, for decades on, there was a period of great turbulence and in a way almost the, that turbulence has never really ended it's been interesting on this centenary to observe that uh, that refocus of attention really yeah I, I completely agree and in fact as i was doing as i was doing the translations and i you know i live in beirut so i'm right in a sense right in the middle of things and i was seeing what was going on around me particularly in syria and i thought you know it seems to as you say slot into so well with what uh, what these people in the volume were talking about the tragedy it's almost as if the trials and tribulations of these people who have lived these four catastrophic years never really ended you mentioned a bit before that uh, all these volumes have already been published in Turkish. None of them have appeared in English before? or There is actually a French translation of Falih Rifka's Reitindar, but it's really, really bad. I mean, the, the whoever translated it mutilated the text. There are bits where he says, he makes the author say things that he's not saying at all. So I would consider this the first proper translation of the text. The others, to my knowledge, none of them have appeared in any language other than Turkish. And in Turkey, are they fairly widely known? I know that Fali Rifka is quite well known, but all, all five of the characters, are they recognizable figures in popular culture, do you think, or are they less well, well known? Fali Rufka certainly in that regard because he continues to write into the Kemalist period and he's become, and he becomes sort of a standard reading in, in schools because of this very strong Kemalist um, line. So he fits in well, fitted in well with the official ideology. The other four um, are not at all very well known. And the reason I chose these ones also is because these are not top-notch figures. I mean, they're not like Jamal Pasha. They're not like uh, Enver. They're not like um, top players. These people were people who were involved in a sort of secondary level, but still in very important positions. For instance, Ali Fouad Ardan, one of the people I, I, I translated, is, as I refer to him in the book, Jamal's nuts and bolts man. I mean, he actually ran the show. Right? Jamal did the posing and the politicking and the whatnot, but he actually made sure, or he, he tried to, run the logistics, if you like, of the 4th Army District. Uh, as, as to the others, uh, Naji Kujiman is quasi-unknown. I mean, Naji Kujiman is, is very, very little known even in Turkey. But his commander, Fahrettin Pasha, who was the um, commander of the Medina garrison, which, as you've seen in the book, actually held out for two months after the armistice. He's something um, of a national hero. In fact, the thing is, interestingly, he has recently made a comeback as part of the government's new policy to emphasize the First World War and the, and the Ottoman victories or the successes in the First World War. So I would say that my, the, my choice was dictated by trying to bring to life figures who have not been in the very top sort of, uh, of limelight.
Now, uh, Fali Rivka Atai uh, is a very interesting character. The first section of the book is uh, is taken from his memoir uh, called Mount of Olives in English, uh, Zeytindar in Turkish. I actually read that Turkish of his memoir a few years ago and found it very interesting back then. So it was very good to return to him in this volume. Just talk about the life of Fali Rivka. You know, who was he? Why was he significant? What was his profile, really? Well, the thing what, that makes Rivka uh, interesting is, from a historian's point of view, first of all, his memoirs are a testimony of how the war was seen during the 1930s. He wrote, in fact, two volumes. One is Atesh ve Güneş, Fire and Sun, which is a very uh, short piece, which he wrote immediately after his return from Syria in 1918, after he returned in 17, and then he incorporated much of that in Zeytindar. Uh, so what you have in Zeytindar is really a sort of um, early Kemalist 1930s evaluation or appreciation of the war. It's very much in the line of the, um, you know, the stab in the back syndrome, those nasty Arabs, they stabbed us in the back, or what I call the good riddance syndrome, which is the Kemalist position on the loss of the Arab provinces, meaning that we, we were much better off without them. So Fari Rifka is also interesting because, as you've seen, you I understand you read Turkish. Uh, he writes beautifully, and therefore he is a pleasure to translate. And I tried to stay as loyal as I possibly could to the meaning, but also to give some sort of flavor of the times. Uh, so rather than do a very dry translation, I, I tried to give a, his state of mind as well. And that state of mind was very interesting. He was a child of the Ottoman Empire, he served it for many years. But like many who came to become part of the early Republican generation, he, he came to have this kind of extremely negative view of the empire and its role. Um, it was basically, you know, the early Republican Kemalist view par excellence, really. Oh, yeah, the empire definitely. had no business in the Arab territories. You know, it was bad for the Turks, bad for the locals, bad for the state itself. And also, like many others of his generation and his station, uh, he was a child of Rumeli, uh, the Balkans. And for him, in a way, it's very interesting, and he was by no means unique in this, you know, losing the Balkans. The, the Ottoman Empire's losing of the Balkans was a much greater emotional blow than losing the Arab territories, and that really comes through in this memoir. Oh, definitely. I mean, the um, Rumeli was, uh, I mean, Rumeli's loss was traumatic for all of these people. And I, I do try to make that point in the memoirs. Can I say something about the um, introduction before we forget? I think if I were to choose myself, the most important point that I try to make in this introduction, it has to do with the very end of the war. You see, in Turkish, we always talk about the Palestine front as the Bozgun, as the route as if everything sort of collapsed overnight. Which, of course, from what my reading is not true at all. I mean, these guys, Jemal, Enver, all of them, were hoping to salvage something at the end of the war. Because as I, as I said in the introduction, as I'm sure you've seen, we have to do a sort of contrapuntal reading with what's happening also in the West. I mean, as late as, as, late as the Ludendorff offensive in the spring 1918, you know, the German ally actually stands a good chance of still winning. And my view is that they were hoping that if this happened, there would be a negotiated peace. And at this negotiated peace, they would be able to sit to sit down to the table on the side of the strong party and negotiate and possibly, very possibly, uh, win back some of this Arab territory that they had lost. I think that's the most important thing I tried to say in the introduction. 
And the next chapter in the book, or the next section, is uh, the the memoir of Hussein Kazim Kadri. That's right. A very interesting character. He was one of the founders of the the Committee of Union and Progress, or the Young Turks, and a journalist. But he also, I believe, after the war, had a change of heart, really, in a way. I mean, just talk about him. What makes him an interesting character to consider in this context? Well, he's, as I said in the introduction, he's a very exceptional character. First of all, um, he's the only one in these memoirs who's very, very self-critical about what the Turks were doing, what the Ottomans were doing in, in Syria. Uh, to some extent, of course, this is because he was, he's an embittered man. He's lost out and he's, um, uh, he's, uh, he's a bitter character all around. But he has a very interesting relationship to his uh, Syrian people, as it were, when he's the Vali there and he becomes part of the local power struggle. And another exception, another way he's an exception is he doesn't join the Kemalist regime after the war. He's one of he's one of the very few people, in fact, he's the only one uh, among those that I translated, who becomes very critical of the Kemalist regime. And in fact, he, he completely drops off the radar and he retires. He's an independently wealthy man. He retires to his home, his yellow, his seaside residence in Istanbul and, and carries on his scholarly work. So he is actually an, a very interesting person in that regard and the fact that he can do self-critique and the fact that he well for one thing very unusual for a high ottoman official he spoke fluent arabic which made him exceptional in another way and that memoir that, that's included in the book when exactly was that published um, I believe the first edition was in 1934, very soon after um, he passed away, in fact. And um, it was not published as a, as a full volume until later, in fact, I believe until after Mustafa Kemal's death, because the book extremely critical of Mustafa Kemal. And uh, chapter three is uh, the memoirs of Ali Fouad Adan. We mentioned it a bit before. Uh, he was a soldier, a fairly senior soldier. He was Jamal Pasha's number two man in Syria uh, during mm. the war. Jamal Pasha was the commander of the, the army in, in that region. Uh, what makes him stand out? Well, my, what makes him stand out is the very fact that also he's one of these people who seems to have dropped down through the cracks. I mean, he's very few people actually. I mean, today we know we know of Jamal, right? We know of Enver, we know of Talat, we know of all of these people. But with this particular person, very few people today would actually know he existed. Uh, you'd have to be something of a specialist in World War One to know about him. Uh, what makes him interesting is as he combines two aspects of in his character. One, he is this very cool-headed, what I suppose what the Brits would call stiff upper lip, professional soldier. And on, on the other hand, in his memoirs, he sort of waxes romantic. Suddenly he's, he's talking about you know, how the Suez Canal was glittering like a, a silver necklace and so on. Then he goes back to the nitty-gritty of, um, of how many soldiers crossed the, the Sinai and how many pontoons they had to slog over the desert and so on. And then he, he, he goes off on another tangent where he compared himself to Saint-Just of the French Revolution. So he's, uh, he's uh, something, of a, something of a strange character. The next chapter is a very interesting, includes the writers of a very interesting character, Munavar Ayashla. And yeah. uh, as you describe uh, in the book, she was one of the very few eyewitnesses and writers of this era who was a woman. What was her background and life story? 
Well, I mean, what, there, I mean, the other woman who is very important here is Halide Edip, who is this great figure in, in Kemalist um, pantheon. But Ayashla is interesting because, first of all, she was a young girl, and her father was stationed as the, the director of the tobacco regime monopoly, first in Aleppo and then in Beirut. And what's fascinating is, you know, you think uh, the memoirs of a young girl, and you, you tend to think, well, what can she remember? But then when I cross-checked with various other sources, it's amazing. She's spot on. I mean, she wrote these memoirs 40-something years after the event, which is really quite remarkable. So uh, she's interesting in that regard. She's also interesting in the way that she's a typical example uh, of a sort of upper-class, ruling-class Turkish person and the way they look at the world around them and particularly the, the Arab world around them. And as I say in the introduction, it's very like a, what you normally imagine a, a sort of British Raj Mem Sahib, uh, would, how, how they would look at, say, the native Indian or the native uh, subcontinental population. So there's that aspect. Uh, and of course, there's also, again, the combination of uh, various acute observations with um, incredible macabre scenes. For instance, when when she describes how Jamal Pasha's sister, older sister, visited them in, in Beirut and they took Jamal's special train to go from Beirut to Damascus and how the, the, the Hanum Efendi, the, 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 the big lady, who just as they were crossing the anti-Lebanon range in the height of spring, flowers are out, she says, stop the train. And they stop the train and little Minerva hops out and picks flowers. <laughs> this is an amazing scene, you know, you know what I mean? And Mundabai Ayasha, she's almost a paradoxical figure because you mentioned there that she was a figure of the ruling class, really. But later she came to be seen in the Republic as this kind of religious, rather right-wing personality, very oh, critical yeah, of the Republic, saying it was this unnatural imposition. Uh, but in the memoirs, we get a flavour of that. You know, she's describing her time in Beirut and Lebanon, and she's describing this very remote, very imperial, really, life, not really mixing at all with locals. I don't believe she, she knew the language. I don't know, is that a paradox there, or is it uh, to be expected of somebody in her time and place? Well, in a sense, yes, because in a sense, that's why I included her, because in a sense, because apart from the fact that she's a young girl and she has no official capacity, I wouldn't call it a paradox. I mean, she's very much a product of her time. She's a very self-conscious little person, who's very self-conscious about being a member of the ruling class. I mean, the fact that she wrote this 40-something years afterwards is remarkable, and she doesn't make any of this up. I mean, when she says, for instance, she was a witness to the last days of the Turks in Beirut, in Lebanon, and I cross-checked everything she describes about those days, actually, it's, it's correct. So in that regard, she's, um, uh, she's very interesting. I wouldn't necessarily call her a paradox. I mean, the fact is that she had she had her reservations about the Kemalist state, uh, and she became a sort of, I, I must say, somewhat obscure figure of the Turkish sort of Islamist right. Again, one of these figures you wouldn't know about un unless you were digging into the period. And um, the final uh, chapter is sections taken from the memoirs of Naji Kujuman. Just describe who he was and why he was included in the book. Well, the reason I included Naji Kujuman is because from a methodological point of view, his piece is interesting. The book is interesting because it's uh, both a memoir and a biography. 
It's a memoir because it's written from, from the pen and from the mind of Naji Kichiman, who was the intelligence officer of Fahrettin Pasha, the defender of Medina. So he was with him at all times, and Fahrettin trusted him completely. So it's, it's his memoir, but it's also a biography, uh, in a sense, of Fahrettin Pasha himself, uh, because Fahrettin Pasha gave, from what I understand from the text, Naji as many of his personal papers as he could. So Naji is, for instance, writes that Fahrettin Pasha sent the following order to the troops. And Dadada gives the order. And that is very rare because in order to get to the official, the actual document, you would have to access the notoriously inaccessible archives of the of the military chiefs of staff in Ankara, which is practically impossible to get into. And that's why I chose him, because he's, it's, a, it's a sort of two-pronged text. It's Naji himself, Kujiman, and on the other hand, it's also Fahrettin Pasha. Uh, the defender of Medina. Now, it's, uh, it's stating the obvious, really, to say that all the authors witnessed uh, historic events. You know, this was a period when the collapse of a centuries-long order in the region really was realised. Uh, the First World War, with all its horrific depredations uh, in the region. Just uh, also here, I'd like to ask you quite generally, really, to comment on how each of the writers talks about a number of key historical events. Uh, firstly, uh, there's the deportation of the Armenians, uh, the genocide, and all the writers mentioned what happened. Uh, they knew what was going on. I mean, what stands out from what they wrote? They all refer to it, and particularly Ayashle refers very specifically to these Armenian girls who were, or young women who were taken in by Turkish officers or, or, or officials and sort of, quote-unquote, adopted or married off to members of the family, uh, and then who were later reclaimed, uh, some of them, when the Allies arrived. So that's a very, very important part, the sort of forcible conversion of Armenian orphans. So that's that that is reflected in all of in all of them, uh, and of course in in Alifuat Ardan and Eminevarayash, you see that it's very much official Turkish line that this was a military measure necessary to cure the army from sabotage or whatever from behind the lines. The Arab revolt also looms large. Of course, this had a very seismic impact on the mentality of the empire as well. That's also reflected, I think, in all of the memoirs. You know, people refer to it. People are involved on the front line, really, of this, uh, dealing with this issue. I mean, how is it reflected? Who Who is the best or, or most interesting, let's say, person to consider when thinking about the Arab revolt and, and how people at the time experienced it? Well, I think I think the most important figure there is uh, again Ali Fuad, Ali Fuad Ardan, because he was involved in organizing the logistics of the army uh, on both of the occasions when they when the army marched to the Suez Canal. But I think um, the, the most direct impact of the Arab Revolt on any of these five people is obviously Naji Kujiman. I mean, he's there in Medina, surrounded by Arab forces, and he gives a day by day account, a blow by blow account of that that event and when you cross check and uh, cross reference uh, the things he says again it's corroborated by other sources but it looms large in, like as you said in all of the memoirs because it's the ultimate manifestation of what i call the stab in the back syndrome that these people took british gold and stabbed us in the back and it was of course the standard line
Yeah, and that fit into a broader sort of psychological state of affairs in the in the empire that went back a couple of decades and it projected forward into the Republican era as well. You know, this really was a defining time, actually, and that the Arab Revolt was crystallised a number of um, perspectives, really, I suppose. In most of the writers, at least in this book, uh, we can kind of see that this was kind of a, an educating moment, really, you know, the, the Arab Revolt. Even if um, a majority of people didn't take part, a majority of locals didn't take part in it, it was seen as somehow symbolic of the fact that the empire didn't have any business there and it wasn't appreciated enough so why not retreat to um yeah but that was uh, really uh, that was really after the effect the defense of medina turned out to be a huge tactical error even in 1917 as early as 1917 people like mustafa kemal and indeed limon volsanders himself were arguing that they should pull out of medina and and bring in these 14000 highly mechanized veteran troops for the defense of Palestine. But Enver wasn't listening. Enver was insisting that Medina's symbolic value as a, one of the capitals of the Islamic faith made it necessary for them to hold on at all costs, which indeed was a very high cost. The other thing I would like to mention in this regard about important moments in memory is from the other side, from the Arab perspective, I can't stress enough the importance of the shock of Jamal's execution of the Arab patriots in Beirut and Damascus. It's a very critical moment, particularly for Syrian Arab historical memory. Maybe not so much in Iraq or maybe not so much uh, in Jordan, but certainly in the Syrian Arab, meaning Lebanese and Syrian historical memory, the execution of that elite of intellectuals and writers and poets and so on really left very, very deep scars indeed. Uh, one of the other very interesting episodes of the uh, of the First World War, I think, uh, and the Ottoman Empire's role in it was this declaration of holy war or jihad. There's been quite a lot of research about this in the last few years and the German Empire's role in pushing the Ottomans to declare jihad. And you mention it in the book, and I think you've written about it elsewhere. Just talk about this issue, like what was the thinking behind that tactic? Why did the Germans want to push the Ottomans to declare a holy war? And why were the Ottomans, as I understand it, not reluctant, but it wasn't an obvious thing for them to do at the start of the war, I suppose. Clearly, this was a German plan, and obviously the, the reason was to hopefully create uprisings, if not massive uprisings, at least serious disturbance among the Muslim subjects of Britain, France, and Russia. Uh, in the end, it became it was it was something of a it was something of a, a non-starter because these massive uprisings did not occur. And also, I think it's also linked to the Suez Canal offensive. The idea was that Jamal would march on the canal, and that uh, you know, agent provocateur and whatever in uh, Egypt would unleash massive uprising against the British. Of course, that didn't happen, but it's now c coming pretty clear from the literature, and indeed Ali Fuad Ardan also says this, is that there was never any very realistic plan to, to actually capture Egypt. The much more realistic plan was, and this was the German plan, was to tie down British troops in Egypt, British and colonial troops in Egypt, which would otherwise have been used on the West the Western Front. And that, of course, from a German point of view, makes very good strategic sense. 
And that is precisely what happened. And from that point of view, although the canal attack on the canal was a abject failure, the fact is that the British, to the end of the war, had to keep, I believe, something like nearly 80,000 troops stationed in Egypt to protect their vital connection via the Suez Canal to India. So in that regard, perhaps the jihad declaration was not very, very effective. Uh, there's a quite a lot of literature, nonetheless, that the Germans took this very seriously, that they sent special Orientalist agents to Iran, Afghanistan, even India, and um, there was a very real possibility. There was a fear, actually, among the British that there would be some sort of Muslim uprising. The British were very wary of sending Muslim troops to Gallipoli, for instance. They used them in Iraq and so on, but as far as I know, there were no actual Indian Muslim troops in Gallipoli. There were Rajputs, there were Hindus, there were Gurkhas, but I think very, very few, if any, Indian Muslims were taken to Gallipoli. Now, uh, you write in the introduction that, quote, all of the authors were writing and publishing in the intellectual milieu of the Kemalist Republic, whose attitude to the loss of Arab lands you define as the good riddance syndrome. And uh, over the last couple of generations, however, quite a different attitude or trend has emerged. You know, the cliche is that this is a neo-Ottomanism, which is a bit of a misleading and vague term. But uh, in Turkey, there's definitely, as we know, this obsession now with the uh, Ottoman Empire for many people. And for a lot of people, it's very much a about sort of power you know it's a glorious history that's internalized and they want to represent just talk about this 180 degree shift really from that early republican perspective I was actually going to include a section in the introduction on this, but then because of the, the word limit, I actually took it out. Uh, yeah, there is, a, as you say, a 180 degree shift. There is a sort of romanticization of the war. I mean, Gallipoli, of course, was always huge. I, when I was in primary school, Gallipoli was, was a sort of legend. But now to that, they have added new victories. For instance, Kut al-Amara, the victory over the British in Iraq, when a whole British army surrendered to the Turks, including a full general, uh, General Townsend, that has become very much, uh, it's become a banner of, uh, of Ottoman success recently. Even more striking is Enver's disastrous uh, campaign in, in, in Sarıkamış, in eastern Turkey, in 1914, when 65 to 70,000 soldiers froze to death. Even that is being commemorated as a sort of martyrdom rather than military fiasco. That, of course, again, is something new. And just generally across the board, I mean, there's the television series, one after the other are being made about the sort of heroic uh, Ottoman troops and also the resistance against the French in Anatolia and so on. It's all part of this, what has come to be called so, somewhat naively neo-Ottomanism. And it's, 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 it's interesting that this whole um, World War I framework should become a sort of legitimizing past for the present-day uh, regime. That was Selim Deringil. Many thanks to him. Do have a rummage around the Turkey Book Talk archives to listen back to one of the many episodes we've published on this era. In January, we had Yiit Akin talking about the Ottoman home front during the First World War. Before that, we had Michael Provence talking about the last Ottoman generation and the making of the modern Middle East, as well as Ryan Gingeras on the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Also in the coming weeks and months, we'll be hosting Elif Mahir Metinsoy of Galatasaray University, discussing her book, Ottoman Women During World War One. 
which is another one to look forward to. Remember to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gets you access to that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive of over 80 conversations so far and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and various other things. To become a member and get all that, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page to stay fully updated with new episodes. And you can send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until the next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Bitches!